This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello and welcome. I'm Krishna Kumar, the director of RAND Labor and Population. It's my pleasure to introduce our speakers for this distinguished speaker series. Professor Edmund Phelps is a Nobel Prize winning economist, winning the prize in 2006 for deepening our understanding of the relation between short-run and long-run effects of macroeconomic, in particular monetary policy. He is the director of the Center on Capitalism and Society at Columbia University, as well as dean of New Wadu Business School in Fuzhou, China. He began his career as an economist at the RAND Corporation. His newest book is Mass Flourishing, How Grassroots Innovation Created Jobs, Challenge, and Change, in which he argues the modern values underlying the modern economy are under threat by a resurgence of traditional corporatist values that put the community and state over the individual. Our moderator tonight is Peter Passell, the editor of the Milken Institute Review, the Institute's Economic Quarterly. He joined the Institute as a senior fellow after eight years as an economics columnist for the New York Times. He previously served on the Times editorial board and was an assistant professor at Columbia University's Graduate Department of Economics. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished speakers. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, Let me follow up with just one thought about before I give the, the floor rightfully to Ned. Uh, let me follow up with one thought. Um, Ned won the Nobel Prize in 2006. And unlike most Nobel Prizes in economics, this one's understandable. And I thought I would... <laughs> I, I thought since many of you aren't economists, I would give you the 30-second version so you actually know what some Nobel Prize economist actually did. Um, he did many things, but the thing that he's most notable for was, uh, was one... Great insight. Uh, Before Ned thought about this problem, it was widely assumed that there was a simple, stable trade-off between unemployment and inflation. If you wanted lower unemployment, you paid a price. You paid a price in a little bit more inflation. Or if you wanted less inflation, you paid the price and accepted a little bit more unemployment. Ned's great insight was there is no stable relationship. That once once you hit the bottom near the bottom, at some institutional level of unemployment, all you're doing is delaying the day of of the inflation taking off. Essentially, this was very, very bad news for Keynesians. Uh, At a time when Keynesianism was really at its peak in influence. Um, Now, now, Ned is not an anti-Keynesian, but that's an entirely other story, and that's not what we're here to talk about. We're going to talk about mass flourishing, which is Ned's new book, and I going to give him a few minutes to, to give you the whole word so you don't have to buy the book later. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Ned, please. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm very grateful to Rand Corporation and the Milken Institute for uh, arranging this uh, opportunity to speak about my book, Mass Flourishing. Uh, <clears throat> and, and thanks to Peter, too, for taking his time out to do this. Uh, the book is about the modern economies uh, which is what I, what I call them, that uh, sprouted up uh, early in the 19th century, first in Britain and America, later in uh, Germany and France, <clears throat> and remained 
fully function, uh, well-functioning until various times in the uh, middle of the 20th century. Uh, <clears throat> the wonder of uh, these economies was not high wages, as if the workers had discovered fertile land or something like that. Uh, the, the wonder was the uh, widespread prosperity. I distinguish between uh, material prosperity and non-material prosperity, but I think uh, it's also important to distinguish between uh, classical prosperity and modern prosperity. Under classical pros prosperity, the market forces are driving up wage rates, for example, and a worker doesn't have to do a thing. He just rides the rising tide. Uh, you could say he's prospering, but I think that would be a little bit misleading because it has nothing to do with him. It's just wages are going up. Uh, the other kind of prosperity is, is, is modern prosperity. There are gains, in, in, uh, gains in, in earning power from new insights, and there are gains in satisfaction from uh, new insights and from creating things. And, and uh, for me, this is succeeding at the individual level, or what I will call prospering. Um, now, <clears throat> what was behind this? And uh, this had, had, had never been seen in any large numbers before. What was behind this? Uh, I, I argue uh, that it, it was innovation. Uh, large numbers of people were tinkering and creating innovations. Now, <clears throat> it's very important to, to, to note that over broad parts of the country, it's believed that innovation is basically a matter of science. Scientists make discoveries. Entrepreneurs make the commercial applications. Uh, I argue that's not the way it was. First of all, we're not enough scientists to cause this explosion of innovation between, 19, between 1815 and 1940 or 1960. So you couldn't possibly say that, 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 these, that scientists' discoveries were doing all that. And it was science was weak in the, in the early decades of the 19th century anyway. Uh, <clears throat> you had to say that, it, that these modern economies possess their own dynamism, their own desire and their own capacity and, and, the, and, 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 and the scope to, to innovate. And uh, just like an individual has a capacity to create something new, so I call this indigenous innovation, uh, rather than the um, the, uh, the other kind that, that's sort of more uh, classical. Um, <clears throat> was this good? Well, you betcha. Um, there were fantastic uh, material gains. Wages were rising all the time. In the old days, they went up for a while and they went down. Uh, now they're just straight up. Uh, and, of course, there were phenomenal improvements in in uh, health and uh, uh, nutrition and disease and all that. <clears throat> but I, I'm fascinated by the material benefits. People were doing different things in the workplace from what they'd ever done before. And this completely changed the experience of life.
And uh, I argue in the fun chapter uh, that um, uh, Beethoven and, uh, and uh, Strauss and uh, Ricard, Strauss, not Johann, and, and, and some other composers, and also uh, uh, painters and uh, writers of fiction, were, were onto that. They felt that. They were expressing some of that in, in their writing and in their depiction of, of um, individual uh, life. Uh, <clears throat> now, at the end of this Act One, some really bad news happened, and that is that uh, there was a severe reaction against these modern economies, or even the, the specter that, that one of these modern economies might be coming our way, as in the case of Italy. Uh, and and what happened was that uh, a number of uh, intellectually influential and and uh, politically uh, astute people got together and started creating a counter economy, which uh, I call uh, corporatism. Uh, that's that's the name that Mussolini used also, corporativismo to be more accurate, and. Uh, Basically, this economy is based on uh, <clears throat> a whole different set of values. I'm about ready to stop now. Uh, uh, <laughs> the modern economies were based, I argue, on modern values. Yes, thinking for yourself and uh, earning for yourself, and then also uh, those, those are values that are connected with individualism, and then there are values that are connected with vitalism, uh, the quest for uh, exploration, that kind of thing, and then and then uh, and then there are also a set of values that I think have to do with the expression of the person. Uh, the person does this to sort of find out who he or she is, or does it for the sake of personal growth. Uh, and, and so these were the modern values. Uh, they came out of what uh, Jean Jacques Barzin called the modern era, which ran from around 1490 to around uh, 1940. Now, the, the, the corporatist economies were based upon traditional values, patriotism, family, uh, not s staying with the group, conformism, all that. So you had quite a clash here, uh, and at, at the end of world, at the end of the 1930s, and and uh, with World War II, it looked like well, that's the end of that. Uh, Italy and and Germany and France will uh, not go on any longer, will not go on with these corporatist economies, uh, and 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 they did eliminate some of the trappings and. Uh, but it seems to me that fundamentally, they they retained an awful lot of the of, of the flavor of the corporatist economies, and and then uh, they, maybe I should stop here, Peter. Okay. And, and well, let me actually, th this gives me an opportunity to force you to sharpen something here because I think it's a very radical it's a very radical idea what you're offering here, though it may not have sounded so radical when you said it. Um, if I get this straight, in the long run the health of an economic culture doesn't depend on 
what you learned in Econ 101. It doesn't depend on incentives to work or save. It doesn't depend on the efficiency of markets. It doesn't, af- it doesn't depend on the, the efficacy of macroeconomic policy. Um, or it doesn't even depend on the quality of education, a big one these days. What it depends upon is pretty much society's openness to innovation. Now, that's pretty radical, isn't it? And society's desire to innovate. The, 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 the welling urge inside people to, to, to innovate, to explore. That's where the modern values... Gotcha. Yeah. Um, how do you... <clears throat> it's interesting you say this, though. I mean, it, in a way, you're saying we've en- we, that era has ended. We've, it's kind of closed down under, the, under a corporatist culture, which essentially tends to, tends to, um, uh, to, to reduce incentives to, to, incentives to innovate. It, it, it undermines modern values, as you'd put it. Um, yet this is the era of the Rand Corporation, not let, let alone um, Silicon Valley. Uh, America, in many ways, is still considered the, the envy of the world in terms of um, its openness to ideas, at the, at the business level, at least. Um, how does this gel with what you're saying? Okay, okay. Well, we're, we're s- s- certainly, um, we Americans are more Im- imbued with these modern values than uh, any, any other nation in the world, I think it's safe to say. And, and uh, I think that um, among, among Western nations, I think uh, the American economy is still more innovative in the aggregate, but it's not nearly as innovative as it was before. Uh, <clears throat> I like to trot out a calculation, uh, as, uh, uh, namely that uh, between 1922 and 1972, that part of the growth of output per man hour not explained by the growth of capital per man hour. We used to call it the residual when you and I were in graduate school. That residual was running at around 2% per annum from 1922 to 1972. So 2% and percentage points of growth were related to... Innov- to so, to so yeah, so, so two points, uh, mm-hmm. two percentage points were, 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 were coming from this uh, indigenous... Innovation, some other stuff too, but on average that goes away. I mean, those are tr- in ephemeral things that are messing up the data, mm-hmm. but they go away. <coughs> then, uh, beginning in the late seventies, <coughs> the number drops to around one percent. So we're still innovative. One percent means you double productivity in in seventy two years, but seventy two years is a long time. And you, you could be forgiven for not noticing uh, uh, m- much innovation uh, <laughs> at, at 1% per annum. And uh, so, uh, and the other thing to, to have to say is, so there is still innovation in America, but just I think we're just not as innovative. Secondly, I mean we're not as innovative in the aggregate. I think there's been a, a, a huge decline of innovation in the, heartland of America in, in the big old established industries uh, dominated by uh, large established companies. 
But out here in California, with all your wonderful uh, garage innovators and uh, all the ferment and the music business and the film industry and everything, you're, you've uh, been spared uh, or you've, you've, you've managed to counter the, these, uh, these, these trends. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I think the country as a whole is in, in, in real trouble. Um, uh, as I recall, we won World War II. Um, <laughs> yet the, the birth of corporatism was in, was in German and Italian fascism, the organization of, of the economy through the state and through large corporations. Um, what happened here? Why, why did we lose our mojo? Well, <clears throat> when I first started thinking about that question, the obvious hypothesis well, is, was, well, we've lost our modern values. But then I realized that, first of all, I wouldn't know how to be able to establish that uh, by looking at data because we don't have long time series on household attitudes that could be uh, from which we could perhaps draw some inferences about a decline of modern values. Uh, but I, I think that um, we, we do see uh, lots of uh, cultural evidence that's about what Americans say, what 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 politicians say, what commentators say, and it, and it seems to me that uh, in America now it, it's very common to hear, uh, uh, well, for one thing, I, I think that there's um, a tremendous downgrading of uh, creativity. I, I remember um, reading a, a book review of a new book about Edwin Hubble, the, the telescope guy, and it... it, 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 it presented him and uh, the, the the book re the book reviewer more than the book itself i think but the, but but the book reviewer uh especially just reviled hubble well a few months went by and then i read a, a book review about uh a biography of edward hopper the great painter same thing uh, it was all about allegations of, of misbehavior, of everything, and nothing about the fabulous uh, creativity. And and um, I got another one or two examples, but I was struck. Last week there was another one, Robert Frost. There's now a great debate between uh, the the daughter of a, of a, a friend of mine, uh, who's taken on uh, Joyce Carol Oates uh, about. Uh, Robert Frost. Uh, now that's just one example of of, of uh, a, a big sea change in the way we talk about our about our our, our ideals and and uh, our values. Another one uh, was um, Geraldine, uh, the candidate for vice president. Uh, they know Ferrara. Ferrara. She was saying that um, what this, what the country is all about is you go to work, you do your work, and you get your 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 and you play by the rules, 
and you get your share. And if something, I think the implication is if something doesn't, if something bad happens to your share, uh, the government will come in and, 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 and get, and get oh, that share back up. Oh, I'm so glad you raised this. Yes, back up. And, 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 and uh, I thought, wow. <laughs> that's, an am- that's amazing in a number of ways and a number of levels. For example, it seems to suggest that the worker goes to the, to, to the company and collects the pay. And that's what pay is all about. Well, maybe in some sense, maybe that is a, a, a lot of what paychecks are all about. But the, the growth of a person's income has an awful lot to do with his, his initiative, his or her initiative, or imagination, creativity, insights, experience, all this stuff that, that uh, is, is uh, a part of an individual's makeup and a part of uh, his or her contribution to society. And that's being totally... This, uh, the, I think this, we're hitting a place here which I, I, I think we, we can get some, some audience anger going here if, if we try. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Uh, 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 let, let, me, let me express it for them to start. I'm not angry, but I, but I am struck by a point. Essentially, one could rephrase that and say that a lot of this problem is the rise of the welfare state or the expectation of, of having a welfare state. Which, um, so in, in a way, you, you really do not like the result of modern liberalism. <clears throat> I'm not a neoliberal. I'm not in favor of a smaller government. Of course, if I could, I, I would make a lot of wage, a lot of government, a lot of spending cuts. But I would also make a lot of additions to spending. I'd, 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 uh, I think probably the federal government could, could do a better job with education if it spent some more money, for example. But... Um, I'm 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 not a a neoliberal, and I, I'm also and also I I I'm not against um, social security, medical insurance, social insurance for medicine, uh, for for medical care. Those things are fine, but I think what happens is it, is, is that the idea kind of uh, spreads that well. Why shouldn't everything be free? Not just the Medicare, but what? And I, I think it's, I think a, a, a culture of entitlement is, is kind of fed by this. So so that um, and 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 if uh, and also I think it's very bad for young people growing up if they see that their parents uh, are, are uh, heavily on public support. What what kind of a role model is that? And also, if, if they're heavily on public support, maybe they don't have. Maybe they're not so motivated to have a job, so they're not in the business sector. So they're not teaching their children anything about the business world and how it's you know kind of interesting and and, and uh, might be uh, rewarding to be in. Yeah, I think you've dug a nice deep hole on this one. Uh, um, <laughs> And we'll leave it to them to see if they want to fill it or not. Um, I've, let me switch the topic just a little bit here. Um, we've got we've got this failing, essentially this f- this failing modern economy. Um, uh, um, but there are lots of winners within this failing modern economy. Yeah, lots of winners, um, <clears throat> and those winners have learned that it's pretty easy to take 
control of things, and, it's get, and they make it easier and easier for themselves to control things. Um, after one laments the death of, the, of this modern state, how do you take it back from the people who benefit so much from it? Are you talking about the fact that the big corporations have become skilled at buying uh, uh, special interest legislation? Sure. And protecting, <laughs> and, and protecting themselves uh, from the competition of upstarts, new yes, entrants. In, in yes, in general, incumbents yeah. have gotten better and better I think at this, this right? this is uh, a huge part of the inequality story, but it's also a huge part of the innovation story. Uh, once the, 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 the established corporations, the, the duopolists or the oligopolists that are uh, dominating an industry get a lot of carve-outs and get a lot of special tax deductions, then that makes it harder for startups to enter the industry and, and um, change things uh, with, with new products and new methods that will drive down prices and everything. So the, the potential startup entrepreneurs don't innovate. They can't, they can't innovate. And the established corporations, which might have been doing some defensive innovation just to keep out uh, startup entrepreneurs to deter them, they don't have to innovate anymore because they're, now, they're, now they've got the protections of the carve-outs and the tax deductions. So, so, But are we finished? Is there any way to get it back? And that's a very corporatist thing because uh, the, the, uh, under Mussolini, of course, uh, there was a dialogue between the government and, and the big industries, and, and uh, um, it, it wasn't as if the, the Mussolini had a vision for the whole economy and, and the corporations should shut up. Uh, certainly, the, the, the uh, big corporate leaders had an influence on the government and got, got things from the government. Um, last question that I will ask, and then we'll give, it, give the audience <coughs> a shot at this. Um, this this is this is allegedly the the age of 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 um, the emerging economies of China of India of Brazil. Some people would put Russia in that category. I don't know why, but they would. Um, um, are those economies succeeding because they're modern, more modern than us? Uh, the short answer is no. But I'm beginning to think that China is proving to be. Uh, better and better at innovation than, than I un understood uh, when I first started going, going to China quite a lot in 2010. Uh, <clears throat> I thought that, China, that all of China's uh, technological progress was the result of what economists call techno technological transfers from America, in other words, copying. Uh, and and <clears throat> I'd been in China for a year or two, and, 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 and this view of mine was actually reinforced because some of my Chinese colleagues said, we here in China, we Chinese are, are afraid to stand out from the group. We're afraid to, have a, to, to advance a different idea. So it's going to be generations before we can innovate like you Americans. Well, that's what they were telling me. But then... Uh, Later, my handlers started sending me to uh, factories for visits. A and um, I discovered at, at, at two or three of those companies that, my gosh, 
Not only are they very sophisticated, not only do they know everybody in the business around the world, but they also, many of them are, 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 are thinking about innovation. And some of them are uh, innovating on, a, on a, a, a small scale. But we have um, the, the, the whole secret of America's rapid innovation was that everybody was innovating. It was innovating down to the grassroots. And, and China, with its huge population, uh, is a little bit like that, too. There are an awful lot of companies uh, that um, uh, are, are, are thinking about innovation, and some of them are beginning to do it. Now, uh, we talked about numbers before. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I got a uh, frequent uh, collaborator and, and former student of mine, Gilfi Zuega, uh, to do some computations of uh, the this rate of innovation that we were talking about before in America, to do that calculation for China. Well, that's, that's a difficult thing, but uh, the, the, the what, and, 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 and any answer, any estimate has to be looked at with considerable suspicion. But uh, for what it's worth, the, I was rather surprised to see that the, the first cut, uh, in, by way of an answer, was 2% per annum. Adam. Two, two percentage points of China's 7% growth is indigenous innovation by Chinese. Now, maybe that number is, is, is off by quite a bit. But gee whiz, that's bigger than America's 1%. Okay. Um, there, I have lots more to ask, but I think it's time to, to let you guys do the talking. Um, what, wh I would like to impose one thing on you. Let's, let's, let's give a priority to questions that are about the, the, what we've been talking about here, about mass <coughs> flourishing, about the ideas that, that Ned has been talking about. And if we have time, then we can get on to what, why the stock market's going to go up or something, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else is going to do the picking, right? Yeah. Okay. At the risk of asking a very politically uh, tough question, I'm looking down your list of traditional and anti-modern values, and I'm just wondering, in your opinion, is the rapid rise of fundamentalism, I'm over here, the rapid rise of religious oh. fundamentalism, not, I'm Sorry, not talking, the what? The rapid rise of religious fundamentalism. Now, I'm not talking about in the Muslim world, but I'm talking right here at home with the conservative movement. Is that at all related to this decline in innovation and the rock going back to the more traditional and non-modern uh, economy. Put you on the spot, didn't he? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I resolved early in this work that uh, my, my book uh, and, and this thinking that my book uh, reports uh, that um, I wasn't going to get into religion because uh, it, it religion is a very complex thing and uh, there are many dimensions to every religion. So, I mean, it would have been a, a huge subject by itself. And uh, so, uh, but, you know, it's a fair question. What, it, what, what do you think about, the, what, what do you think might be the influence of the rise of religious uh, fundamentalism? Uh, it sort of looks like a traditional value, doesn't it? Mm. So, uh, 
one might think that it's 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 a value that is kind of competing with that individualism and vitalism and and quest for self-expression that uh, that I labeled modern um, so that children of homes from homes with fundamentalist religions uh, wouldn't be thinking about uh, doing some uh, garage innovation uh, next week. Uh, uh, you might think that, but I don't know. Uh, some, you know, we, we often find that people who belong to certain religions are, are uh, very much caught up in, in, in business and... and uh, that don't go on. I'll tell you why. Because the book, there's so much in the book, and there's so much, so much stuff you've thought very carefully about. And this is this is blue sky time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's keep going. I'm just speculating. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we have a question in the center. Thank you very much for your uh, very informative presentation. I appreciated it. Um, they're coming from another uh, country, um, Canada. Um, I. <laughs> Remember that, at least in my day, when people innovated and uh, were unsuccessful and went bankrupt, they were considered pariahs. I mean, bankruptcy was just the most horrible thing. And when I came to America, I discovered that um, being uh, losing out and having a second chance was a very, very important part of why people were prepared to innovate. They could... Um, they could lose and gain and lose and gain. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just uh, you know, along that same line, having read a few things about what's happening in China these days, if somebody... What's happening in what? China. 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 Yeah. You know, if someone does something very innovative and they lose, then they run away or they commit uh, Harry Carey or whatever. You know, it's not really inducing... Uh, in, uh, um, it doesn't encourage people to be more innovative. So I'm, I'm wondering if you think that maybe the structures, the social structures and the judicial structures of America are one of the important reasons why people are prepared to innovate because they can lose and then come back. Yeah. Well, I do think that's, uh, that's true. I do think that America has, that's an, it's an advantage of the uh, American culture that um, it's okay to fail. And... and um, I don't know about Canada. That that's interesting what you say. I I do know though that there is a horror of failure in Italy because in Italy, for example, uh, if you have been allowed by society to start a, a firm, you got credit from the bank and so forth, then you are regarded as holding a public trust in in your hands, and if you fail. You've let down the country, and so that's so, so that is you, you're very stigmatized if if, uh, if you uh, if, if your business uh, fails. Uh, um, d- is it the case that in China you're stigmatized, or you just feel bad? <laughs> of course, maybe that's the same thing. But anyway, but what? You might get assassinated too. <laughs> um, let's continue. We have a question in the middle. 
Thank you. Uh, I'm curious about that we've dropped about 50% in our creativity over the last uh, few decades. What do we need to do to reverse that? Well, of course, that, that's a way of talking. Our creativity is probably still there, but it's, it's not being harnessed uh, uh, as before. Um, well, this, this question, of course, um, I wish it weren't there because it's such a hard question, and uh, I hated even to address it in my book because I knew that uh, I'd probably strike out. As Peter said in his introduction very well, uh, I take the position that you can uh, rationalize uh, or, or, or optimize uh, the tax structure all you want, and you can uh, you can do every you can follow you you can adopt every policy prescription of, of all the right thinking economists in the country, and at the end of the day, y- you may have. Uh, increased uh, efficiency quite a bit, but have you increased dynamism? Have you increased the desire and capacity and scope that society allows uh, for uh, innovation? And uh, in in most cases, I I think uh, there's a big question about that. I don't I don't think that any of, I don't think that any of the standard uh, policy proposals uh, really go to uh, innovation very directly and very powerfully. Um, so, I, I, so I'm frustrated by the debate. Okay, now I, I'm, I continue to duck your question. Uh, <laughs> now let me try to answer it. Why don't we try to change those values? Why don't we... Uh, make people understand that while a lot of these traditional values are very nice and and it's 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 understandable that we respect them and and even admire them but you know a lot of these traditional values have big social costs uh it's not right of a family to put pressure on the kid to stay in the town or city where they live because, you know, grandma needs some help and sis needs some help with her schooling and all that. That, that, that way of thinking is, is taken alone, looking at it, uh, would be one of the many things that, that tend to, to freeze up the economy and, and tend to, uh, Subdue the uh, urge to innovate, or or, and also of course if 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 if, if communities are uh, opposed, if 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 communities are intolerant or unappreciative of uh, innovation, then that's going to cause uh, potential innovators to think twice about attempting to uh, make an innovation. Uh, because, out of fear that, uh, for, for fear that um, the community won't won't allow the innovation in, and and so, I think if we don't change our thinking, if we don't come, if we don't realize that all these traditional values that have accreted uh, over the past cent- century or so, 
uh, but I think especially since the 1960s, if we don't realize that all these traditional values that have come back and, 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 and become uh, uh, so influential are having this big social cost, then uh, we're not going to get very far. While if we do, if we can make the, make, if we do come to that awareness, if we do see that, hey, that's right, what we've got to celebrate is not so much the family, but exercising creativity and exp- ex- exploration and voyaging into the, to the unknown and doing new things. Uh, if, if we start doing that, it'll be powerful. And we'll take off like a shot, just like the old days. Okay, um, <laughs> let's keep going. Okay, we have a question in the back. Dr. Phillips, uh, thank you very much for your commentary tonight. It's very interesting. Uh, could you address uh, two questions? Number one, in a historical sense, give us more perspective in terms of countries that at one point in time were very dominant, like England, on an economic basis, and their demise, and how much the lack of innovation played a role in terms of that demise. In addition, Japan was going to take over the world uh, economically, and uh, it didn't happen. And could you address that as it relates to innovation? So that's the first question, historical. And then going Authority forward. two. <laughs> <laughs> and then going forward, if you don't mind, go beyond China and tell us which two or three countries that you say have relatively high innovation relative to their... Well, (coughs) there's so much there. About Britain, um, when I was in graduate school, I I, I read a little bit about what they called the the climacteric, the the, the belief that... It was believed that uh, Britain had... uh, lost its mojo uh, in the 1890s or the time of the Boer War or something like that. And and that was that. Um, But uh, more recent uh, economic historians have shown that uh, this total factor of productivity growth that I was talking about before, this uh, growth of productivity not explained by the growth of capital per hour, per man hour, for man hour work, uh, that was held up pretty well right through the 1930s. Britain's um, huge stumble, it's uh, sinking into uh, uh, a state of um, very low innovation and uh, low morale. Uh, That was uh, in in the years after World War II. Well, that's Britain. now you ask about um, Japanic, China, and and oh. uh, and uh, and uh, oh. Jap- uh, no uh, Japan and Japan Japan, Inc. And in, in Japan in the seventies and eighties. Yeah, what about Japan? Uh, <clears throat> oh, by the way, about Britain, Britain became rather corporatist. You know, they always the Brit, uh, the British always had a soft spot for for uh, corporatism. Uh, Keynes was. Uh, Quite interested in, in what Mussolini was up to. Of course, this was before the before Mussolini became a uh, uh, a terrible uh, tyrant. But uh, so 
So when Mrs. Thatcher uh, came into office, one of the first things she did was try to put an end to to uh, to, to to the uh, ability of uh, big corporations and big labor unions to to run the country and run the economy. So Britain is complicated. It had dynamism, then it had corporatism. Mrs. Thatcher helped helped it to regain a bit of dynamism, but I think the jury is still out on how well that's going. With regard to Japan, um, certainly Japan was a highly corporatist economy as, as, as uh, going way, way back. And uh, I suppose that it, um, it did relatively well uh, after World War II because uh, like Germany and France and Italy, it was engaging in technological transfers from the United mm-hmm. States. So productivity in Japan was growing like crazy, as in Germany and France and Italy. And, uh, <coughs> and then at some point, um, the uh, strings began to run out. The, the, the low-lying fruit that could be copied from the United States became uh, scarcer and scarcer. And uh, Japan uh, hit that slowdown <coughs> around, what was it, 1980? It slowed in 1980 and really fell apart in the 90s. And it's quite interesting if you look on the back pages of the OECD economic outlook <coughs> and you look at what's happened to productivity in the other countries I mentioned. France and Italy were going along pretty well until around 1998. When suddenly, I think it was in Italy, (coughs) productivity growth dropped like a stone. And the next year, it dropped in France. And uh, so I think all these countries simply ran out of the the possibility of this, um, ran out of the rich possibilities of uh, technological transfer about the same time. There was one other point you were, uh, yeah, would you, are there any, quickly, are there any economies right now that sparkle in your, in, from the dynamism point, point of view? Well, a lot of scholars find uh, a lot of dynamism in Denmark and uh, in, in South Korea, the Samsung certainly has uh, done uh, quite a bit. I don't know whether Samsung is deeply creative. I don't think it's like Google, is it? And as I say, uh, China's indigenous innovation is being uh, hidden from view by the fact that it is still transferring a fair number of technologies from the United States. And something very important that I didn't have a chance to meet, uh, to, to mention before, there's something called technological diffusion. As a matter of fact, Richard Nelson and I might have invented that here at the Rand Corporation, but I don't remember exactly where we did it. Uh, and, and that is the rate at which a new technology travels from one firm to another, the, the rate at which the adoption of a new technology travels. And, and what's happening now in China is that the new technologies that were introduced, maybe of, of American origin originally, those new technologies which are now in, in, in the more sophisticated companies along the coast, 
are now spreading over all of China. So you're, you're getting a big growth of productivity, not from indigenous... Uh, so there's that there's there's a big element of, of productivity growth that that is neither indigenous innovation nor is it technological transfer nor nor is it current technological transfer from the United States. It's just the widening of technologies that were already uh, transferred. Um, last question, because we promised to get you out of here quite soon. Thank you. Just a quick question. Is, is it that Americans and American companies are becoming uh, less creative and, and less, uh, less, they're creating less ingenuity? Or is it that American companies and American entrepreneurs are now realizing uh, this creativity overseas? I mean, the U.S. has continually regulated business more. We have one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. We're seeing more and more technologies that have been maybe developed by Americans, but it's a Hong Kong company going public in Hong Kong. And now the, you know, the income from that is being realized in places like Singapore and Hong Kong. And how does that factor into things? Well, maybe so. Maybe you're right in your conjecture that that's scaring off American corporations from attempting to innovate. But uh, on the other hand, the idea of defensive innovation, I'm not sure how... how uh, what the state, how, what what the um, s support for that theory is, but uh, the idea of defensive innovation would suggest that uh, American corporations would be scared into attempts to inv innovate more, uh, for fear that if they don't, uh, overseas companies will take their lunch from them. Well, I think I think we've we've not come to an end, but we've come to a middle where we have to quit. Um, I'd like to thank you, uh, Ned. It was very interesting. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.